Hello and welcome to episode 10. In today's episode, we will be discussing gestational diabetes mellitus. This is a relatively complex topic because of conflicting screening strategies that we currently have. You have to expect one to three questions on the exam. So there are major physiological changes in pregnancy in multiple different organ systems. The total blood volume increases, the respiratory rate and the tidal volume increase, the kidneys become larger, and blood vessels relax and the blood pressure falls. When it comes to glucose metabolism, that can also change drastically and it changes according to the gestational age. In early pregnancy, there is enhanced insulin sensitivity and lower glucose levels. Typically, because of increased glucose utilization by the placenta and the fetus, as well as a dilutional effect from the increased blood volume. The fasting glucose as a result will typically be lower in early pregnancy than the average adult, with an average fasting glucose of 71 mg per deciliter. To compensate, hepatic gluconeogenesis increases and insulin secretion is slightly reduced, which partially results in a higher postprandial glucose than non-pregnant adults. Now, around 16 weeks gestation, after significant placental growth, insulin resistance begins to increase. That happens as a result of hormonal production from the placenta, such as human placental lactogen, progesterone, cortisol, and placental growth hormone, as well as increase in inflammatory markers and cytokines. For example, in patients with pre-existing diabetes, we see an increase in the total daily insulin doses linearly after 16th week gestation through 36 week gestation at about 5% increase in the insulin dose per week. And it typically plateaus after the week 36 as the placenta ages. So by the end of pregnancy, patients with pre-existing diabetes typically have double the insulin requirements as the pre-pregnancy state. And immediately after delivery of the fetus and the placenta, the insulin requirements typically drop by 30 to 50%. So if you're managing a patient with gestational diabetes mellitus in the second or third trimester, and you suddenly see that the insulin requirements drop, then it can potentially indicate a placental insufficiency that requires urgent consultation with the OBGYN. So in today's scenario, we have a 26-year-old female with a body mass index of 28 and a history of polycystic ovary syndrome who is 20 weeks gestation. The question is, what is the next step? Should you perform an oral glucose tolerance test now? Should you wait until she's 24 to 28 weeks to perform the one-step oral glucose tolerance test? Should you wait until she's 24 to 28 weeks to perform the two-step oral glucose tolerance test? Or should you perform an A1C right now? And the correct answer is to perform an oral glucose tolerance test right now. That's because we typically perform universal screening for gestational diabetes mellitus at an age of 24 to 28 weeks using either the one-step or the two-step approach. However, if you recall our discussion in episode 1 on screening for diabetes, you will realize that this patient already qualifies for screening even before conception. So there is no point in waiting and you might actually detect um, pre-existing diabetes. Patients who are pregnant in the first trimester with risk factors for diabetes should be considered for early screening.
The criteria to diagnose diabetes and prediabetes in early pregnancy, meaning less than 15 weeks gestation, is exactly the same as non-pregnant adults. A1C can be reliable before 15th week gestation. However, it becomes unreliable after the 15th week. And so the gold standard at that point becomes the oral glucose tolerance test. If the patient did not meet criteria for early testing in the preconception period or an early pregnancy, or if it was already done and it was negative, patients should still receive universal screening again at gestational age 24 to 28 weeks. So the universal screening can be done in one of two methods in order to detect gestational diabetes. In the one-step approach, patients present to the lab in a fasting state. They get a fasting glucose performed. Then they receive a 75 grams of oral glucose. And then they have a one-hour and a two-hour glucose measured. If the fasting glucose is above 92, or if the one-hour glucose is above 180, or if the two-hour glucose is above 153, then a diagnosis of gestational diabetes mellitus can be made. So remember that you only need one criteria of the above to be met for the diagnosis to be made. Again, that's a fasting glucose above 92, a one-hour glucose above 180, and a two-hour glucose above 153. Now, in the two-step approach, for the first step, the patient presents to the lab in a non-fasting state and receives a 50 grams of oral glucose, and then one hour later, their venous glucose is measured. And if the result is above 130, then they can go and proceed to the confirmatory second step. Keep in mind that some societies recommend a cutoff of 135 and some societies recommend a cutoff of 140 milligram per deciliter. When patients proceed to the second step, they, they have to be fasting. They get a fasting glucose measure. Then they receive 100 grams of oral glucose and their venous glucose is measured at one hour, two hour, and three hours. And you need two out of the following four criteria to be met to have the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Fasting glucose is above 95, and the one-hour glucose is above 180, and the two-hour glucose is above 155, and the three-hour glucose is above 140. If two of these are positive, then the diagnosis can be made. While contrary to that, the American College of OBGYN thinks only one of these criteria could be met for the diagnosis to be made. So you might wonder, why is there so much discrepancy in different criterias and rules for doing something as simple as screening for gestational diabetes? And the reason for that, and in order to give you some context, you have to understand the level of evidence that's available to us and the pros and cons and the viewpoints of different societies and the reasons for adopting different approaches. So starting with the one-step approach, which is adopted mostly internationally as well as by the American Diabetes Association, this criteria is clear. You need one abnormal value in order to diagnose gestational diabetes And for this, all patients with pregnancy have to present in a fasting state and receive the full two-hour oral glucose tolerance test. Here, 
The test tends to diagnose a larger amount of patients with gestational diabetes because only one abnormal value is required. And that results by a rise in the rates of gestational diabetes mellitus by at least 20%. And when tested on some populations against the two-step approach, the rates of gestational diabetes actually doubled and sometimes tripled according to the population. So the reason they use uh, an easier criteria, it's because it's based on the HAPO study, the Hyperglycemia and Adverse Pregnancy Outcome Study that looked into 23,000 patients. And they found that at these cutoff points, there are um, higher rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes, including large for gestational age, and also there are clear and tangible differences in the future risk for these patients to develop diabetes, as well as the future risk for their neonates to develop obesity and insulin resistance later in their life. While in the two-step approach, which is adopted by the American College of Obstetric and Gynecology, as well as a multi-specialty group that founded the NIH Consensus Group, as well as the U.S. Preventative Task Force. All of these proponents, they praise the simplified approach. You know, there's no need for complicated um, oral glucose tolerance tests for all these patients. You know, we um, perform a simple non-fasting test, 50-gram oral glucose, one hour, on everyone, and we identify high-risk individuals and we perform a more confirmatory, more complicated test later on. It does have a more stringent criteria where they have to meet two out of the four abnormal glucose values for them to get the diagnosis. And because of that, you, you know, you're reducing the medicalization of pregnancies, you're reducing the burden to healthcare, and you're reducing the healthcare costs. And also, they doubt the... Um, marginal benefits that are cited in the HAPO study. And as far as the U.S. Preventative Task Force, they say that there are no tangible differences in perinatal outcomes to support the one-step approach and all the extra healthcare costs it poses. There was a recent study that actually looked into the perinatal outcomes and didn't see any differences between the one-step and two-step approach but there are questions about whether the study was adequately powered to detect such differences. So, in my personal opinion, you know, the gestational diabetes is a short period of time, and detection of at-risk populations should have a very low threshold, because the risks of treatment are mainly materialistic, while the risks of mistreatment are grave and could have long-term consequences. In my opinion, the one-step approach, although maybe more laborsome on the healthcare system and the pregnant population, in terms of both diagnosis and treatment, remains at least my preferred method of approach. Although knowledge of both approaches is very important, as well as their pros and cons in order for you to practice. So once the diagnosis of gestational diabetes is made, patients should be managed in a multidisciplinary team with medical nutritionists, diabetes educators, and endocrinologists. A minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrates, a minimum of 71 grams of protein, and 28 grams of fiber 
should be consumed, which is a well-rounded diet. So patients should not go on an extremely restricted carbohydrate diet, but they should focus on complex carbs rather than processed simple carbs. Physical activity, especially after meals, can improve postprandial spikes and is generally considered healthy. Patients should measure their finger stick glucose in a fasting state as well as either one hour or two hours postprandial. And the normal values for fasting glucose is between 70 and 95, while the one hour should be less than 140, and the two hour should be less than 120. There are insufficient data to support the routine use of continuous glucose monitor in patients with type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes mellitus. While the CONCEPT study looked at pregnant patients with type 1 diabetes, and they found that using continuous glucose monitors in addition to finger stick testing, not as a substitute, as well as A1C, can further improve outcomes, including improvement in A1C and reducing rates of macrosomia and neonatal hypoglycemia. So after performing these lifestyle interventions and writing down their finger stick glucose values, you can evaluate their glycemic managements on lifestyle therapy, and if they are above the threshold for 20% or more of the values, according to -to UpToDate, then the treatment with insulin should be instituted. Now, metformin and gliburide should not be used as first-line agents, as both of them can cross the placenta to the fetus, and they lack long-term safety outcomes. If metformin was used for polycystic ovary syndrome to help with conception, then it can be continued up until the end of the first trimester and then discontinued afterwards. Typical regimens in pregnancy include intermediate-acting basal insulin, such as NPH, either once or twice a day, depending on the needs, along with rapid-acting pre-meal insulin. Now, follow-up should be performed at regular intervals throughout pregnancy, and uh, patients should be followed up by telehealth in between physical visits, if possible. Now, before we end the episode, let's talk a little bit about preconception counseling in women with pre-existing diabetes. So, when you have patients with diabetes who are contemplating pregnancy, if they have very uncontrolled diabetes, then they should be advised to get it under control first before contemplating pregnancy. Your discussion should also include the use of prenatal vitamins, which include at least 700 micrograms of folic acid and 150 micrograms of potassium iodide. And you should also educate patients about the need for dilated eye exam before pregnancy and then every trimester or as recommended by their ophthalmologist. Medical nutrition therapy referral should also be considered. Women should be counseled on the importance of glycemic management and the differences in glycemic targets between pregestation and gestational state. They should also be counseled on the effect of dysglycemia on maternal and neonatal outcomes. They should be tested for albuminuria, and any harmful medications should be withdrawn, such as ACE inhibitors and statins. Cholesterol-lowering medications are generally stopped, and only omega-3 fatty acids are considered safe for patients with hypertriglyceridemia. Preconception care and improved A1C, you know, getting it below 6.5% at least, or preferably below 6% if safe, 
results in lower risk of birth defects, preterm delivery, perinatal mortality, small for gestational age, and neonatal intensive care unit admissions. While A1C elevation in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy is directly related to renal and cardiac anomalies in encephaly, microcephaly, and caudal regression. So this concludes our episode today about gestational diabetes mellitus. In the next episode, we will be discussing diabetic nephropathy. Thank you for listening.